0: hi i am bj and i i why is that funny i i'm a staff pastor here one of the staff pastors here um and we're going to read scripture but before i i get to that um i want to talk a little bit about our prayer all-nighter that happened here um I, one of the things i do here most of what i do here is i work with the youth i also work with um, the sound team i kind of uh, run those two departments and um our all-night prayer nighter there was at least, off the top of my head, there was at least six of our youth here at the All Night Prayer All Nighter. And I invited them on Wednesday. I was like, you guys should come down and, and do their prayer. And in the back of my mind, I'm thinking, yeah, all right. Junior hires and high schoolers are going to come to an all night prayer session. The, the name All Night Prayer Session freaks me out. And I'm a 32-year-old pastor. So I was like, there's no way. And we had six. And two of them stayed there till 5 a.m. Think about that. In prayer, I heard these kids interceding for individuals in the body they didn't even know. You take a 10,000-foot view, and you just look down, and you just see what God sees, these, these kids interceding for the lives of people in this building. And it ah, breaks my heart in the best way possible. I absolutely love it. So um, prayer on letters, they're awesome. We do them regularly. I, you guys should, if you've never been to one, make it to the next one. Well, this morning, we're going to open up with um, just a little bit of scripture reading before the sermon. This is Isaiah 66 verses 1 and 2. And it reads as this, this is what the Lord says, heaven is my throne and earth is my footstool. Where could you possibly build a house for me? And where would my resting place be? My hand made all these things, and so they all came into being. This is the Lord's declaration. I will look favorably on this kind of person, one who is humble, submissive in spirit, and trembles at my word.
1: Hi. (laughs) That's why it was funny. It's good to see you guys again. Um, if you're new to the church, just want to welcome you this morning. My name's Mike. I'm also one of the staff pastors, and BJ got so into the groove, I, I was actually thinking that like I was going to just be able to settle in. You're just going to teach this morning. Yeah, the notes are right here. Go ahead. Uh, do I feel really loud? I feel like I'm going to blow you guys away with my voice. Okay, well, you just go like, oh, like that, and then I'll know if it's painful, and BJ will be to blame. Um, You guys it's Palm Sunday, today is Palm Sunday and it's the beginning of Holy Week. It kind of snuck up on me this year, um, but I'm really excited to be able to share with you guys. It's been a couple of weeks. The beauty of having um, a teaching team here at Transform is that I'm not always up here and uh, I'm I'm used to doing more of the teaching load and so it's actually, I'm kind of scared. It's kind of intimidating getting up in front of a group of people when you haven't taught for a few weeks. So this is good for me. It's good for me to feel the the, the preaching sweats again. I didn't wear my preaching sweats, though. You'll notice. Okay, so uh, understandably, you guys, our gaze this morning is going to rest on the entrance of Jesus into Jerusalem, the triumphal entry of our Savior into Jerusalem the last week of his life before he would go to the cross and die there for the sins of the world. But my heart this morning is not just to talk about the triumphal entry itself, um, the road that Jesus came down and the situation that transpired. Rather, I want to look at this with a little bit of a wider gaze. I want to look at a larger section uh, from John's gospel in John chapter 12. So if you would turn there with me this morning, that's where we're going to be focusing our time. There's uh, Bibles in the pews in front of you. If you don't have a Bible, feel free to use those. Um, And as we consider this final week leading to the cross, we're going to remember on Friday, as we kind of march along Holy Week this coming week, we're going to remember on Friday His crucifixion. And I I encourage you guys to come join us at All of Life Church um, at 6 p.m. for Good Friday service this coming Friday. It's going to be a very impactful time as we remember the cross and as we grieve sin. And after grieving sin on Friday, we get to gather together here on one of my favorite days of the year, and that's on Easter Sunday next week, and we're going to celebrate the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. Amen? It is the greatest moment for the church when our Savior did not remain in the... I'm getting ahead of myself. You get the point. I almost was like, resurrection! We're not there yet. This week, uh, my goal is for us, you guys, as we go through our study this morning that this would really just kind of get our appetites going. After our study time this morning, this week of his life, I encourage you to continue reading. We have done with this week. Read through the rest of the Gospel of John leading up to the crucifixion of Jesus. What happens next after chapter 12 is the beginning of the Upper Room Discourse where Jesus uh, gives his disciples the final teachings um, during the, the, the time of the Last Supper. So I encourage you guys to be working your way through the Gospel of John on the way to the cross on Friday. I want to remind you as we get into our text this morning as well that uh, preceding chapter 12 was chapter 11. It's very important. And the reason I say that is because something very powerful happened in chapter 11. And for all of you who are not cheating and looking at chapter 11, what happens in John 11 that's really big? Lazarus. Who said that? Good job, Courtney. (laughs) Lazarus. Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead on the fourth day of his death, which means he is not just mostly dead, he is all dead, right? That's according to Jewish tradition and the princess bride. And so what I'm talking about is Jesus comes and four days after Lazarus' death, he raises him from the dead. And remember, even Lazarus' siblings, Martha's like, please do not open that tomb, And Jesus is like, open it. She's like, he's going to reek. It's going to be awful. And Jesus is like, open the tomb. And Lazarus comes out. A powerful moment and very important to remember before you read John chapter 12. And so now as Jesus prepares to enter Jerusalem, we find him the preceding evening at dinner. He's at dinner in Bethany, which would be on the backside of the Mount of Olives, he was outside of town, and we find him at dinner with his friends, with his disciples, and with the traitor. And it's there in Bethany that the story begins in John chapter 12. So let's read this together. We're going to take it in sections, and I'll move quickly because this is going to be a lot of verses, but I really want us to have the entire story for context. So beginning in John chapter 12 and looking at verse 1, let's see what's happening there at dinner. Six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany where Lazarus was, the one Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha was serving them. Lazarus was one of those reclining at the table with him. Not reclining as in dead, he was actually eating. Then Mary took a pound of perfume, pure and expensive nard. She anointed Jesus' feet and wiped his feet with her hair. So the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. Then one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, who was about to betray him, said, why wasn't this perfume sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He didn't say this because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. He was in charge of the money bag and would steal part of what was put in it. Jesus answered, leave her alone. She's kept it for the day of my burial. For you always have the poor with you, but you do not always have me. Let's pray. Father, we ask for clarity. Lord, I ask that we would understand in your word this morning something that refreshes us, something that stops us in our tracks and causes us to take careful consideration of what kind of a people we are, of who we are in our hearts. Lord, I I pray that this would be something that creates a revival of true worship in your people, that your word would inspire true worship in our lives from what we see here in this text lord i just ask for your word to flow through me i ask for your spirit to be the one who gives me the words to speak this morning lord we are all myself and every person in this room are desperate to hear from you today and so lord would you speak and would you teach us we ask in your name amen we need to take note of two things in this first section before we get to the triumphal entry Number one, we need to take very careful notice of the acts of Mary, what Mary is doing. And then we need to take very careful consideration as we look at the attitude of Judas. The attitude of Judas is the larger section of this portion of Scripture, but it's what Mary does that speaks far louder and with fewer words. Take note of Mary's posture. Where is she? When she does this for Jesus, when she blesses Jesus with this sacrifice, where is she? She's at his feet. Where have we seen Mary in the Gospels before? If you're guessing at his feet, you're right. Let's remember a few of them. When Martha was upset with Mary, remember Martha was busy working? Get my sister in the kitchen, I need help in here. Where was Mary? Well, Luke 10.39 says, Mary who also sat at the Lord's feet, was listening to what he said. Mary is there at the feet of the rabbi sitting with the other disciples learning from him. By the way, it was very rare to find that kind of a situation where a woman would be seated with the men as a disciple of Jesus learning at his feet. That was something that was traditional. The rabbis would teach in this way, but you wouldn't see women there. Jesus has Mary right there with him and he's teaching her. She's being taught right along with the other disciples. And Martha's like, she should be in here with me. And Jesus says, no. In fact, Jesus goes on in that section. He says, you know, you're troubled about a lot of stuff. He's like, but Mary has chosen the best things. Mary has made the right choice. She's right here at my feet. Grieving the death of her brother. In the previous chapter in John 11, before Jesus calls Lazarus out of the grave, in John 11:32 as soon as Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him where is she she fell at his feet notice again Mary the first thing she does in the presence of the Lord is gets low gets to his feet it's a physical posture of worship of loving affection towards the Lord and here again in John 12:3 at dinner Mary is the one who's at Jesus's feet Mary is the one who's bringing a sacrifice that was so costly, it was worth around a year's wages. Most likely her dowry. You guys, here she is with this pound of perfume. It says it was pure and expensive nard, which is very precious and rare. And she anointed Jesus' feet, and she wipes his feet with her hair, and the house is just filled with this fragrance. Not long before this, Mary was filled with sorrow because of the death of her brother. When she falls at the Lord's feet, she's expressing her brokenness and her sorrow at someone that she loved, her brother, dying. And it's interesting that here, something spurs Mary to come to the feet of Jesus and to do this act of worship. It makes me wonder, and and I I don't know this, but it makes me wonder what she saw in his eyes. Did she quite possibly see the sorrow of the coming week and the impending crucifixion? Did she get it because she had just been through sorrow? And of all the people in that room, all the disciples, Mary was the one who responded. Mary was the one who wanted to bless him and wanted to do something for him to bring comfort and encouragement to the Savior. And as Jesus says, to prepare his body for death. That's a very important part of this text because he says Mary's doing this in preparation for my burial. What does that mean? It means that to some extent she knew exactly what she was doing. You guys, how often did the disciples misunderstand what Jesus was saying? How often did he say, I'm going to Jerusalem to die? Peter disagreed with him so much that he rebuked him for it. Remember that? Get behind me, Satan. Never something you want to hear the Lord say? Mary recognizes in this moment that something is going on. She believes what she's heard. She sat at Jesus' feet, she's heard him teach. Something's different. And as a lowly servant and with no care for tradition, that would frown not only upon what she was doing at his feet, but in letting down her hair. That was against tradition. Women didn't do that very often. And they would only do it in the presence of their families most likely. And here, she not only lets her hair down, but she's wiping his feet with her hair. You cannot possibly get more low than that. You cannot possibly humble yourself more physically than what she was doing in that very moment. It's almost as if Mary was trying to find a way to get humble and as low, as close to the dust of the ground as she could, so that she could bless Jesus. Love in that moment became prodigal, extravagant, over the top, excessive. But in the eyes of someone who doesn't love Jesus, what is it? It's wasteful. Enter Judas his attitude towards this sacrifice that Mary's making. He not only says it's wasteful, but there's a hint of disdain in what he says. And there's thievery in it as well. There's personal gain in it. Because he was a thief and he was selfish, he saw only the monetary value that he could gain for himself. Not the value of Jesus. Nor his sorrow. What are we consumed with what are we consumed with day in and day out church are we looking for the most costly thing that we can bring and lay at the feet of jesus our lives all that we have the skills the talents the gifting he's given to us or are we only looking to make to get some personal gain out of it Saw what jesus was going through Morgan said it beautifully. He said, The radiant loveliness of Mary's action shines like a rainbow of God over the dark clouds that were gathering about him. This beautiful act of worship just is like this beautiful rainbow over the top of what's happening in Jesus' life at this moment. The action of Mary reveals a heart like Jesus's. It looks just like Christ, extravagantly loving at all cost. Is this not The perfect picture before Jesus goes to the cross and lays his life down to see someone who's willing to worship in this way. We see Mary's heart as an example of Jesus sacrificial, extravagant. In the words of Judas, they're shallow, they're mean, they're selfish. Rather than what can be given, what can I take? Rather than how I can serve, what am I getting out of it? This type of consumerism in the church ought to be spoken to often. You are not here for what you can take. You are here for what you can give. I am not here for what I can take. I am here for what I can give. And I'm not talking about money. I'm talking about the gift gifts that God has given to you that he has called you to this place he has called you to a church to serve and to minister and to pour out your life into each other that is what we're here for you are one part of a body you are not the body we together are knit together as the body of Christ under his leadership and his guidance and I want to say this to you because I love you guys and because I need to hear it as well We cannot do the sinful disservice to each other of refusing our gifts from one another. Use the gifting that you have. And if you're like, I don't have any, I will help you find it. (laughs) Sounds like a parent giving a kid a chore, right? I didn't mean it like that. That's not what I meant. You guys, so many of us look at our lives and we say, I got nothing to give. Oh, yes, you do. Ask the people around you. Ask the people around you how much you bless them how much you minister to them, the things that you do that encourage them. You have gifting. You're a part of a body. And it doesn't matter how small of a part of the body that you are or that you consider yourself to be. I'll ask you this. If you really think that there are parts of your body that are insignificant, cut your baby toe off. You tell me how that feels your entire body. Just, you know, do what I do. Rack it on that table by the door every time you walk by it. I mean, if that isn't a picture of how important members of the body are to the whole, rack your toe on a wall. You'll know. Because your whole body responds. Right? It's not like, conk. Hmm, that toe hurts. <laughs> if you're anything like this, it's ha. Ah! You know, and I could go on and on and on. If it's a really good one, I'll roll around on the floor for a while. You've had this. You know what I'm talking about. It's one little toe. What's the big deal? It's an important part of the body. It's connected to everything. And it's amazing that that little toe can communicate with every part of my soul at one moment. There are visions. I've seen things. You guys, Mary worshipped beautifully here. This is beautiful. She brought all that she had. She held nothing back. I want to encourage us to do the same. Regardless of the ridicule, regardless of what people say, regardless if the world says it's unwise, love Jesus extravagantly. Love Jesus and thereby love your family, love your friends, love your co-workers, love your church family extravagantly. Pour yourself into them. And I will tell you this, you will never run dry for the source of what you pour out is the Holy Spirit himself. Amen? He will continue to fill you if you present yourself to him and say, I will give all that I have to you. That's what it looks like to worship in sincerity, to worship in the dust. But a large crowd gathers. Look at verse 9. A large crowd of the Jews learned he was there. They came not only because of Jesus, but they wanted to see Lazarus, the one he'd raised from the dead. It said the chief priests had declared to kill Lazarus also because he was the reason many of the Jews were, desire, were deserting them and believing in Jesus. So they came to see Jesus, but they want to see the spectacle that had become Lazarus, right? Here's this guy, living, breathing, should have stunketh, but he didn't, right? I threw that one in there. You guys, Mary associates with Jesus through his sorrow. Lazarus is associating with Jesus in a different way. Notice this, the response of the chief priests is not only to plot the death of Jesus, but to do what? Re kill Lazarus. That's just a fun thing to say, but it's not a fun reality to live, is it? If they want to do away with the work of Christ, now Lazarus is such a living, like, undeniable testimony to the power of Christ that if they need to get rid of Jesus, they have to kill Lazarus. They have to get rid of him too. Think of the stark contrast of their attitude compared to John the Baptist. People were deserting the religious leaders, and they were following Jesus. This is what they're so upset about. But the same thing happened to John. Back in John chapter 3, I want to show you this comparison. In John 3.25, Then a dispute arose between John's disciples and a Jew about purification. So they came to John and told him, Rabbi, the one you testified about and who was with you across the Jordan is baptizing, and everyone is going to him. You're losing followers. You're losing likes. We're only getting 10 likes a day now. John responded, oh boy, Lord, let us hear this. And understand it in our own context as well. Apply this truth to our own lives. John responded, no one can receive anything unless it has been given to him from heaven. You yourselves can testify that I said, I'm not the Messiah. But I've been sent ahead of him. Let me just partner with John real quick. I'm not the Messiah. Thank you. Moving on. We should say that to each other all the time. I'm not Jesus. Remember that. We have a perfect Savior and a very imperfect Person. He who has the bride is the groom, but the groom's friend who stands by and listens for him, John says, rejoices greatly at the groom's voice. So this joy of mine is complete because of who Jesus is, not who John is. His joy is complete because Jesus has come. And then he says the words that we know so well from John 3:30: He must increase, but I must decrease. Jesus must become more, and I must diminish. As the people came and saw the sign of the Messiah, which is Lazarus raised from the dead, they believed in Jesus, and this robbed the Pharisees of their followers, of their likes, of the little heart emojis, and what it did is it wounded their pride. Has your pride been wounded recently? John 11:47 makes it clear that the signs Jesus had done were irrefutable. The chief priests and scribes, they didn't deny them, but they refused refused, refused, refused bald. They refused to put their trust in him, and because they refused to put their trust in him, now they must do away with him. because they refused to accept what Jesus had done as the reality that he was the Son of God. Now they have to do away with them. It wouldn't be enough for them to be satisfied with just killing Jesus either. You see, the evidence of his power is too clearly visible by looking at Lazarus. Did you catch that? The evidence of the power of Christ was too visible in Lazarus for them to allow him to live. Let us be guilty of this same association. Let us worship like Mary and let our lives be a testimony like her brother Lazarus that if you want to kill the reality of Jesus, you may as well do away with me too because I'm a living testament to what he can do. And that he is the, all the good that's ever happened to me, ever. Any of the good in my life is attributed to him. Let the workmanship of the Lord be so evident upon us that if they wish to do him harm, they have to include us that we are naturally guilty by association. That it's just like what it was for Peter and for John when the Sanhedrin, they're having their little meeting in Acts and they're talking about it and they're like, they notice, they said, okay, first of all, they're uneducated, right? That's always nice. I'm five, they're like, okay, first of all, Mike is very uneducated. Um, But I want the second thing too. And it says, they took note that they had been with Jesus. It was evident that these men had been with Jesus. It was all over them. We ought to be the living, breathing evidence that Jesus can bring the dead back to life, church. That's who we are in Christ. Amen? That's why we love baptism. Shameless plug. If you have not been baptized, that's exactly what we're going to baptize for on Resurrection Sunday in a week. So that all the world can see, and by all the world, whoever's here and whoever's watching on, online, they can see people who have been brought from death to life because of the work of Jesus Christ. It's the power of God. Spurgeon said it this way, When men hate Christ, they also hate those whom he has blessed. And will go to any lengths in seeking to silence their testimony. May that be said of us. That if how that in the name of Jesus, they better just do it to me too. That plays out in the Lord's hands. Okay, quickly, let's take a look at the actual event of Palm Sunday. This is important because it's the other part of understanding what it means to worship in the dust. And you may have noticed on the slide, what about the branches? What's that all about? Well, let's look. The next day, when the large crowd had come, it says in verse 12, to the festival, heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. They took palm branches and they went out to meet him. And they kept shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, the King of Israel. Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Do not be afraid, daughter Zion, look, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. Josephus, the Jewish historian, tells that one year a census was taken of the number of lambs slain for Passover, and the figure was 256,500. That's a lot of lambs. And so, with numbers that large, lambs must literally be driven up to Jerusalem throughout the entire day. Consequently, whenever Jesus entered the city, it is very likely that he did so surrounded by lambs entering. What a picture. I can't help but think of John the Baptist's declaration of Jesus in John chapter 1, verse 29. Here is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. What a declaration for Palm Sunday. Of all the lambs that were driven to Jerusalem to be sacrificed that Passover, he was the lamb of God led by the Holy Spirit to be the atoning sacrifice, as we're told in Hebrews 10, verses 12 through 14. But this man, after offering one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God. He is now waiting until his enemies are made his footstool, for by one offering, he has perfected forever those who are sanctified. Amen. Love it. What lay ahead of him in the coming days was abuse and slaughter, and yet what a scene this must have been to see preceding his crucifixion. What a thought for the disciples to go back and think about when it took place. For here our Savior is praised for who he actually is prior to his crucifixion and death, because they take palm branches and they go out to meet him, and they kept shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, the King of Israel. Hosanna literally meaning save now. But there's something about this that should hit us. Just a little wonky. Because dating back to the Maccabees, palm branches were a symbol of Jewish nationalism. The crowd's looking for a political leader. They're looking for a national leader. They're not looking for a spiritual savior. They're going through all of this in a traditional way since the time of the Maccabees to celebrate the coming of a political leader, of a military warrior. And what they're shouting is not save us from our sin, they're shouting save us from Rome. Save us from what we're going through, save us from oppression, save us from the trial, save us from living in America. I'm sorry, that wasn't, that's not in the text, um... completely tongue-in-cheek what are we trying to get saved from better said what did he save us for what did jesus call us to himself for what is the work of his salvation for church you really think that we're here by accident or are we exiles just like the nation of israel was in babylon where God says, I have placed you in this time and this season. I want you to be my people in a foreign land. You guys, this is our time. This is the place he's called us to. And our crowds cry out, cry out for save now is not a bad thing when we ask for the kingdom of Jesus to come. But do not look to a political leader to deliver you in a way that only Jesus can. Jesus does not reveal himself to us as what we wish him to be. Jesus reveals himself to us as who he is, and that's what we need most. Amen? I need Jesus to save me from my sin. And when his kingdom comes, when Jesus returns, let me tell you what, it's going to be the way it should be. And you know who's going to take care of that? He is. He is. As the crowd shouts, Hosanna, they recite a messianic psalm, Psalm 118, 25 through 26. Lord, save us. Lord, please grant us success. He who comes in the name of the Lord is blessed. From the house of the Lord, we bless you. And it says, Jesus finds this young donkey and he sits on it just as it's written. Do not be afraid, daughter Zion. Look, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. We know from the other gospels that Jesus arranged for this donkey to be ready for him ahead of time and this reveals two powerful things he was fulfilling the prophecy of Zechariah 9 9 that's quoted here in verse 15 but also he's purposefully revealing humility and meekness he's doing this in a very specific way because a conqueror would ride into town on a war horse they knew exactly what that looked like Jesus rode into Jerusalem on the day of his triumphal entry on a donkey like a priest or even a merchant would not like a conquering general it was a declaration of peace Jesus revealed himself to his people as their Savior who brings peace Merrill Tenney said it really well. He did not come as a conqueror, but as a messenger of peace. He rode on a donkey, not the steed of royalty, but that of a commoner on a business trip. Interesting. Verse 16 says his disciples didn't understand these things at first. I love John's candor. He's so honest in his gospel. He's like, yeah, we did not get it. Totally didn't get it, guys. He says, However, when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and that they had done these things to him. Meanwhile, the crowd, which had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead, continued to testify. But notice this. This is also why the crowd met him, because they heard he had done this sign. Then the Pharisees said to one another, You see, you've accomplished nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. A little bit of an exaggeration. Isn't it fascinating that the crowd sees what Jesus is able to do and they take what they have seen and they project it on how that should play out in their own lives? Be careful, readers of Scripture. Be careful. Read the text for what it says. Extract from it what it says. Apply it to your life. But do not read your circumstances into it and think that God's going to do everything for you that you want him to do because he can. Maybe this is why we struggle so much as the church. We look at the scripture and go, well, God can do this, and I'm just going to pray that into my life. Why don't you pray the way that James says, if the Lord wills? And why don't we pray around the passages where Peter in his letter talks about us suffering us sharing in the suffering Christ like Mike this isn't very encouraging I wanted Palm Sunday to be encouraging I'm sorry that's not the truth the truth is this the Lord is going to do what he wills it's my job to be found at his feet in the dust it's my calling to be at his feet pouring out my life and saying your will be done God you do what you choose to do I don't want to be like Peter Rebuking the Lord for not doing what I want him to do. I like John offering his commentary in verse 16. Undoubtedly, it brought them a lot of joy through illumination after Jesus was glorified as to what had happened here. This moment had been predicted, I believe, all the way back to Daniel's writings, that this was the moment where Jesus would enter the city of Jerusalem as its king. The crowd's response to Jesus was fueled by their excitement about what he'd done for Lazarus. If Jesus could bring people back from the dead, he certainly could deal with Caesar. And as the eyewitnesses testified of what Jesus had done, the crowds gather with excitement, and they're thinking, this is the moment. This is the moment we've been waiting for. But this is the revelation of the Messiah. As he was, not the one that they wanted. He was the one they needed. In all honesty. They would have been better. To be worshipping him in the dust. Than with branches. Because with the palm branches. They were trying to usher in their own era. And in the dust. Is where true worship happens. Verse 19. The Pharisees despair. Seeing all that's happening. They despair. They don't know what to do. whole world has gone after him. They stated back in chapter 11, verse 48, if we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And that's why the statement happens in chapter 12. They're like, see, just like we said, obviously it's an overstatement, but in the spiritual sense, as is the case with Caiaphas' statement is, if you remember that, about it being better for one man to die than the whole nation perish. John says, yeah, he said that prophetically and he didn't know it. See, Caiaphas' reasoning was like, let's put this man to death before the whole nation gets punished because of him. And John's like, you see, when he said it's better for one man to die, he didn't realize that he was actually right. Jesus was coming to die for the whole nation and for the whole world. Here's some hint of the ability of Jesus to draw all men to himself through the cross. There's a a touch of this in the text. Morris said it this way, They're concerned that a few Judeans were being influenced, but their words expressed John's conviction that he was conquering the world. And Jesus would conquer the world, not through military might, but through the cross. Well, Matthew and Mark's account at this point transition to Jesus cleansing the temple. John's account moves to the Greeks who were seeking Jesus. Luke's account reveals something that happened here that's important. Luke chapter 19, verses 41 through 44 reads this way. When he drew near and saw the city, it says, even you even That means he sobbed over it. Would that even you had known on this day the things that make for peace. But now they're hidden from your eyes for the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you, hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. Ends somewhat tragically, As Jesus says, you didn't understand what was happening. This should have been a day of victory as the word of the prophets was fulfilled right before the people's eyes and rather than understanding the day of their visitation, they're blinded because they're looking for Jesus to be someone they want him to be rather than who he is. I pray, church, that that's not the case with us and that if we recognize it in our own hearts that we would repent. That we would repent if we're looking for Jesus to be who we want him to be, not who he is that we would dare to dictate to him what's best. Of all the expressions of praise found in these verses in John 12, which one's the most pure, sacrificial, intimate, beautiful, and sincere? I think it's Mary's. I think it's Mary's. They're at the feet of Jesus, lovingly sacrificing. In conjunction with that of all the expressions given by God. Declaring his love for us, which is the most pure, sacrificial, intimate, beautiful, and sincere? Hanging from the cross. Blood soaked. Beaten within an inch of his life. Hanging from a tree. It is the most pure, sacrificial, intimate, beautiful, and sincere picture of God's love that you can find. It's the greatest act of love that he could ever commit. The greatest expression of love by God there on Calvary was grotesque to the lost world. It was grotesque, it was disgusting, it was shameful. But it's humbling and it's beautiful and it's overwhelming to his children. To know that we were purchased by the blood that dripped off that tree. This morning we're going to share in communion. Going towards Good Friday, as we share communion this morning, I just want to remind you guys of what Psalm 103 verse 3 says. David wrote, He forgives all your iniquity. He heals all your diseases. Our God is the one who forgives all our iniquity through Christ, through what Jesus did for us. And as we take communion this morning, we're going to have a team come forward. They're going to distribute all the elements. Hold on to them. We'll take them together. I just want us to take a few moments as we sing, as we worship, or even in silent prayer to consider what we're doing. This is for believers. This is a family meal. Um, if you're not a believer in Christ, I'm going to urge you to let the cup pass from you and not to take it. Um, Because this is a family meal for believers in Jesus to share in remembrance of the broken body and the blood that was spilled by our Savior for us. So as you get the elements for communion, hang on to them. We'll take them together. For now, I'm going to invite the worship team up and let me pray over us as we Um, transition to take communion in just a few moments. Lord, we want to offer true worship to you. And Lord, I I, I just don't want to believe that there's anyone here who is in the posture of Judas, of having an attitude that's antagonistic towards what he could take from that moment, but Lord, I just wanna ask that you would reveal our own hearts to us. Are we a people that worship you extravagantly, that pour ourselves out, that give so generously to you that it, it causes other believers to even scratch their heads like the disciples? Lord, I, I, just, I see this as such a powerful reminder and a powerful picture of people who worship in pretense and people who worship in spirit and in truth. Lord, there in Bethany at dinner that night, Mary worshiped in spirit and in truth. And how many people that said, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, the King of Israel, shouted crucify a few days later. How many people that worshiped you were yelling for you to be put on the cross and to be put to death because you weren't who they wanted you to be. Lord, reveal our hearts to us. Would you search us and know us, try us and know our thoughts, see if there's any wickedness in us and lead us in the way that is everlasting. I pray for conviction upon myself and every person here that we would know that we are walking in your truth. Show us if there's any any ways in our lives that that are not of you. Lord, may we be content to worship you in the dust. To wash your feet. To not care about tradition. but To love you in sincerity because you first loved us. Lord, would you just minister in this time as we worship and as we prepare to take communion.